You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting Community Here button on this page and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today I have the lovely Julia Jones. I have been following Julia's work for a long time, and I'm beyond myself to actually have this conversation with her today. So thank you. Thank you for making the time to be here with us today, Julia. It's my pleasure. I I absolutely, one of my favorite things is being interviewed on podcasts. I don't know why. I love interviewing people on my podcast too, but I feel like you make such great connections, meet such interesting people. So it's truly my pleasure to be here. Oh, wonderful. And and I'm the same. That's why I started the podcast, because I just I, I learned so much with every conversation and, and, you know, being able to share that with the public, it's even better. So wonderful. Uh, so first, I always like to start with what my guest's definition of the art of parenting is. So how would you define the art of parenting? Yeah, well, I I might have a little bit of a different perspective than perhaps most of the people you talk to, I'm not sure, but um, I work in postpartum care, so I teach people how to care for, for mothers and new families after they have a baby. So really my deepest philosophy of parenting is that when you care for parents and when parents are happy and healthy, then they will naturally be the best parent they can be for the, for that baby. So I always like to really, you know, it's the same way when you teach parenting, you you know, and you say like, oh, the toddler's upset and having a tantrum, but rather than being angry or, you know, think why, what are they feeling and how can we make them feel more safe and all of that. And it's the same with a mum. If a mum is feeling resentful of her children, if she's shouting too easily, if she's feeling overwhelmed and, and taking it out on the kids, well, Again, my question would be, where are this mother's needs not being met? How can we support her better, care for her better? Um, and then, you know, the happy, healthy mum is going to be the best parent. Right. And and so beautiful that the art of parenting is actually the art of taking care of the parents. Yeah, right? exactly. A lot yeah, of the time it gets yeah. called mothering the mother. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Beautiful. So I would love to know a little bit more about your background and how you came to do this work that you are doing to support uh, new mothers. Yes, well, it's interesting you asked that question today, because this morning, I was just looking back over some of the history of my business. Um, So I've got all of that fresh on the top of my head. We, um, when I was young, I studied social justice at university. I always thought I'd work for the UN in human rights. Um, I did work in community development for a little while. But what really took my passion from a very young age, I think I was only about 24 and I didn't have children myself, uh, was the rights of mothers and the way that as, as a society, culturally, we exclude families um, from work, from entertainment, from public participation in decision making, even from simple things like eating in restaurants or being able to exercise. Um, And I really felt like that was a huge gap in our society. I'd spent some time traveling in Asia and I saw how families were just much more organically included everywhere in workplaces and in social lives and, you know, that sort of thing. And so that really became my area of passion And uh, I started working as a postpartum doula and visiting mums at home uh, and looking after them after they'd had their babies. 
And then from there in about, well, 10 years ago, because I was just looking it up, I people kept asking me to teach them. So when I was studying this, I studied online. I had a wonderful Canadian teacher actually. Uh, I did some online courses with an American, with someone who was based uh, in a different state of Australia than me. And I really had to like hodgepodge and this like different bits of training together because no one was really teaching what, you know, what I wanted to do. So eventually, obviously, when I started doing the work, people started asking me, how do I do what you do? Like, how do I care for new mums too? So it was sort of a, you know, a kind of, well, I'll have to step up because no one else is doing this. There was no training available. So the first time I ever taught other people how to care for mums was in 2012 in my mum's living room and there were seven people there. (laughs) And then from there in 2015 we moved online. We had 16 enrolments in our first class and then now in 2022 we've trained over 2,000 people in 60 different countries in the world. So it's been quite a journey. Wow, beautiful. And, and I know I've, I've watched some of your kind of your, your free content and I've, it's, it's something definitely that, that I might do one day because I am also fascinated by supporting, uh, new parents. I've been actually working as a birth doula, as a volunteer birth doula, and just love that work, but also realize that I want to do more, right? I want to kind of follow follow up. And, and as a volunteer, I don't get that opportunity. So I think I'm going to have to shift something so that I can uh, really be, be of support after the birth, which yes. is... Yeah. I think that's a really common place to start. You know, we treat birth as we treat weddings. You know, we get really excited about the big day and then you kind of like forget that, oh, (laughs) what do we do next? You know, now we've got this baby and, you know, no one told me or I didn't have any plans or I didn't know what to expect. Right. And it's and it's the rest of your life. So, yeah, that's uh, it. (laughs) Yes. And and I know for 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 me, from personal experience, I had um, I have two children and I had I gave birth in two different countries, so had very different experiences, both in prenatal and postpartum care and just, you know, made me realize how important that support is at the very beginning, which now that I'm in the US um, really lacks, like there, there is not much of anything. So. Mm, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting you say that you, you're a birth doula because that very first training that I ran in my mom's um, living room, it was called, I think I called it ancient tools, ancient postpartum tools and techniques for birth workers and the idea was there was a lot of people doing birth work who felt like there's this huge gap in my training you know you know I know all of these things about how to support a woman in labor and during her pregnancy and to prepare for the birth and all of that kind of thing and then you know no one's told me what you do when you know even the doulas don't know what to do with a mum when she gets home so that was my original vision for the training and then over time it's evolved to be a standalone role and even more so next year we're introducing a new uh, certificate that includes modules on mental health sleep breastfeeding so that it becomes a really comprehensive uh, and complete training for people who don't have other uh, experience as well Wonderful, wonderful. And I know you kind of, um, kind of mentioned that on social media that there was something new coming out. So I'm assuming that that's, that's what you, you were mentioning the certification. How exciting. That's very exciting. Very exciting. That's why we've been looking back over, you know, when did we actually start this, you know, 2012, and then 2015. And then I think now 2022, this is the next big milestone, the next big step. Wonderful. And so, and I know also you talk a lot about kind of nutrition, but from an Ayurvedic um, tradition, correct? Yes, I do, because that's where I started. So when I was young, I spent a year in India volunteering and traveling. And uh, I just noticed everywhere that people just had this knowledge of like, oh, if you've got a tummy ache, you you know, you drink this tea or, you know, go and find this herb. And it was just such a natural, normal part of everyone's daily lives that there were just these, you know, medicine women in every village. 
Um, and that food also, you know, people would say, oh, you know, when you feel like that, I'll we'll make you some papaya, uh, whatever it was, you know. So I really, it was really noticeable because I think in Western cultures, we don't necessarily have, we, we've lost that knowledge. We did originally have that knowledge, um, but throughout processes of, of colonisation and globalisation, we've lost a lot of that lineage, particularly for women and and particularly for you know different ethnic groups and different races as well that's been really disrupted that that passing on of knowledge so it was really noticeable noticeable in in India that that there that is still alive and well and uh similarly postpartum care is still alive and well there too um and so that was really where I started that was my entry point into postpartum care was studying ayurveda and traditional indian medicine and of course, food plays a really big part of of that. So that's kind of where I began, and and um, it's still one of the things that people are really attracted to my course for and and what I teach. Um, but it's actually something that I'm I feel I'm um, expand I've expanded upon a lot, you know. So it's interesting that that's still what people think of me as. Right, because uh, that's, I mean, I, I know you have a, a book concerning that. I have your newborn mother's um, book, but uh, it's true that, you know, we start, there's always a starting point and then you you reach out, right? It's not only about the nutritional food, but it's everything else. And I feel like you talk a lot about the emotional support that we, that mothers need and, you know, physical support and so on. So, Mm, and and what I've learned over the years is that even though it was in India that I first witnessed postpartum care, um, I've since learned that it is in fact alive in every culture. It may be buried or secret or shameful. You know, sometimes you have to really find the right people and ask the right questions. But um, you know, throughout the whole world, in every culture, there is postpartum food traditions and postpartum care traditions. Um, so, you know, I've really um, realised that a lot of these concepts are, in fact, universal. Right, right, and, and, and ancient. Um, wonderful. What, what are some of the, you know, in your discoveries and in your research, like what are some maybe uh, postpartum care that uh, surprised you or that um, delighted you, like you, you, you didn't realize, and then it makes so much sense? Yeah, that's a really good question. Probably one of the most difficult ones for me to untangle was an, an idea that comes up in a lot of cultures that new mothers shouldn't get uh, wet and cold. So a lot of cultures have traditions where a woman won't bathe for six weeks, she's not allowed to leave the house, a lot of places will make sure there's no drafts. They'll put, you know, cloths and rags around the doorways. They make sure the windows are closed. You're not allowed to put the air conditioning on. You can't get your hair wet. Um, you know, and it surprised me that this was so common in so many cultures. I, I interviewed some uh, Indigenous people where I live in the southwest of Western Australia, the Bibbulmun Wajak people, and those women said, when I said, oh, do you have any traditions about um, keeping a mother dry and warm and they said well yes we um, my father told me we, we weren't allowed to get our feet wet after we had a baby um, so it just really struck me that this was so common and I it took me a while to figure out why like why would that be um, and I, I think there's a few reasons that over the years they're just theories you know about why this would be supportive for postpartum and and one of them is that physical warmth creates an emotional warmth and that when you feel that coziness that that like huga it's um it also creates feelings of emotional well-being and um you know you want to be it's like cuddly and cozy and that kind of thing there's also the fact that in uh, a, you know ancient times water would not have necessarily been clean um, so if you're talking about a woman who's in a vulnerable stage um, with her immune system, she also might have some open wounds that are still healing, um, then actually it wouldn't necessarily be safe um, to bathe often. That's not obviously relevant now. If you can turn on a, a tap and have clean water, then, um, you know, that's not something you'd need to worry about. And then the other reason is 
um, it would have been originally hard to um, stay warm and to dry off. So when, um, you know, in the old days when someone had a shower, you would have had to, you know, boil water or put it over the fire. It would have been difficult to have like a warm bath and then step out into a centrally heated home and, um, you know, it would have been, again, quite a risky thing for a woman to to bathe and, and that she might get too cold uh, and, again, be, be vulnerable. So, you know, it... it sometimes takes a while to unpack these stories and think about why is that true. And the other thing to note as well is sometimes there is actually no no valid use for some of the traditions. For example, a really, really common um, belief in many traditional cultures is that colostrum is not safe and it's poisonous and it shouldn't be fed to the baby. There is really, really oh. no valid reason for that scientifically emotionally um you know so so as we go through some of these universal postpartum rituals some of them turn out actually to be not valuable to be not helpful right right because right i mean for me colostrum is is something magnificent so <laughs> yes exactly yeah, exactly yeah and and uh, we still find that sometimes if you work with people you know, I mean, I'd say it's actually a really widespread belief throughout Asia, throughout Africa. Um, I'm not sure about other continents, but I do know that when I've talked to women from different cultures, they've said, oh, my mother-in-law said not to feed the colostrum to the baby. It's still really a prevalent um, belief in a lot of places in the world. Interesting. Interesting. And and the, the water, I mean, it makes total sense about, you know, not not wanting the mother to catch cold or to to be cold for for one and and for me like when you were saying that it's like that was the first thing that I wanted to do was take a hot shower <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> so I can't imagine not being allowed to or or that you know that would have been my tradition but I mean I could understand like a bath you wouldn't you maybe wouldn't want to right away but I just I just yeah I needed a hot shower and uh Interesting. Yes, and then some of those cultures that do have some restrictions around bathing, they then also have some rituals for reintroducing it. So um, Morocco especially, they go to the hammam and they have a day where the mother is pampered. She's actually dressed like a bride, um, you know, and that becomes part of the ritual that um, that she's reintroduced to the world and to bathing and um, and that the community cares for her and supports her through that. Beautiful. Beautiful. And in this, uh, when you were saying, you know, uh, newborn mothers, this new era, this new certification that you are doing, I'm assuming, and I know you, you kind of mentioned it, that you will be talking a lot more about kind of the emotional, um, you know, I feel like, like mothers go through an emotional ringer. when they 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 first become mother and and I love how you you know you say when a baby is born so is a mother and we tend to kind of push to the side all of this emotional you know yes happiness but at the same time it can be stress it can be anxious it can be sadness i mean there, there's so many emotions that that come up and uh, so you you will be talking about that in your certification about just the all of the postpartum uh, kind of how do you the the PMADs the what is it perinatal PMADs mood anxiety disorders oh yes um, yes yes so there's kind of two mental health is always flip sides like there's the mental health how do we create a healthy lifestyle that promotes mental health and then there's the pointy end of once someone is ill what kinds of professional supports do they need so the people that I train aren't necessarily psychologists and they can't prescribe or treat um, or cure or diagnose but what we can do as um you know, as these professionals who are sort of like um, non-medical but still still trained is to provide the right kind of lifestyle. So there's a couple of things in there. There's the first part is that transformation and, and that's another one of the common universal postpartum practices is rituals and rites of passage um, to acknowledge this new woman. 
and this huge life change, and that corresponds as well with brain changes in terms of plasticity and hormones, um, and then the rites of passage culturally to support this identity shift internally and externally. And so there's that. And then there's also, um, so there's bringing those back, and I often call it a renaissance because they're not new ideas, it's just a matter of remembering them and, and practising them again. And then there's these lifestyle factors of, around men- mental health. We know, for example, that things like nutrition, exercise, um, and especially sleep have huge impacts on a person's ability to be mentally well. And so even if you're not a psychologist or a counsellor or a therapist, you can still support a new family to sleep better, to eat better, um, to move their bodies and breathe and things like that. And we also know there are a lot of socioeconomic and demographic kind of factors as well. Poverty has really big impacts globally on mental health. Um, so that requires more advocacy and activism at, at bigger levels, you know, that we can try and lift women out of poverty because, unfortunately, women are obviously at high risk of poverty at all stages of life, but especially in motherhood. Um, we also become as mothers, increased risk of suicide, increased risk of domestic violence. Um, So, you know, all of these things need to happen both at an individual level of support, but I would say even more importantly at at a policy change, systems change level as well so that we can actually um because the thing all the things that make you mentally well exercise sleep nutrition there's lots of other things like that all of those things decline once you have a baby your access to be able to participate in a healthy life declines um because we don't have a village around us anymore uh so you know i think that's a really a a terrible shame uh, of our society it's something we should all feel ashamed of and responsible for and um, and really make an effort socially to to change that at a big systems level definitely no it's so so important and and when you were when you were talking about that I uh, kept on thinking you will maybe end up being at the UN uh, <laughs> with <laughs> with this because it's 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 a message that that needs to be heard you know loud and clear and and to to so many policymakers and and this brings back and I'm kind of going to veer off but it brings up um a personal anecdote which is my mother who is no longer with us but she really advocated for third world women where she believed and she and she worked a bit at, at the UN but it was this about um population control right that um that policymakers kept on saying, oh, these women keep on having babies. And yet she took the time to go speak to these women. And women don't want to have five, six children. But if they don't, they're, they're either, you know, shamed or, or pushed away from the village or divorced or, or so it's this societal, you know, kind of pressure, and that it was really about, you know, that, 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 like population issues and control, it's a family affair. Like we cannot just blame women for having children. And- Absolutely. And we do. We blame mothers for everything. And the same thing happens in, in breastfeeding that we generally only invest in interventions that target mothers when, in fact, we know that breastfeeding outcomes improve when we target hospitals and when we target husbands and when we target grandparents, that's actually what makes the biggest difference to breastfeeding outcomes. And when we target formula companies and that sort of thing. So we've got to really stop looking at this as like, you know, mums just aren't trying hard enough or there's something wrong with her body or, you know, it's her fault because she's not good enough um, mm. or she's not educated you know, but really looking at the bigger systems that are around these women and, and actually taking their choices away. You know, most women want to breastfeed and we know that two out of three women don't meet their own breastfeeding goals. They want to and we're not supporting them to do that. No. And that's, I, I love that you said that it is the partner and, and the, the grandparents because I know for myself with my first child, I, I, it was, there was no doubt in my mind that, you know, I was going to breastfeed. It was not, not even like, it didn't even occur to me of, 
you know, contemplating yes or no. It was just like that was part of what I was becoming. But the generation before me, so my mother-in-law and my stepmother at the time, had not breastfed because they were of a generation that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something that was um, done, I guess, you know, the, the, the baby formula had done a good marketing to, (laughs) you know, make women feel that they, you know, that that wasn't good enough or something. And, and I remember, you know, especially my mother-in-law, like just fixating me and, and being like two inches from me of, are you sure you have enough? Are you sure you're, you know, and just putting that pressure on me. And, and thank goodness, you know, I, I, I'm so thankful that I had a very easy, you know, breastfeeding experience and, and, and there was no issue whatsoever, but I can't imagine if there had been, and I had this pressure from, you know, people who, didn't encourage me and didn't, you know, didn't have that. So I I love that you say that it's, you know, about targeting those who surround us. Yeah, absolutely. That village of support is is so essential. And and yet in this world that we live in, everything's about being hyper-independent, not asking for help you know, not admitting. And and I think as well there's that layer too of we're so afraid of being bad mothers and for some people even it's a fear of having their children taken away that we won't ask for help when actually that's just not how we were designed. It's not designed to be a job that you do alone. Yes, yes. No, parenting was never meant to be done alone and that is something that I repeat quite often. And saying that though, how would you... Um, advise maybe uh, a listener who is expecting and uh, or who has just had a child and is needing is needing to construct that village like what is your you know kind of words of wisdom of how to to find that village of support yeah well first of all just to acknowledge that it shouldn't be like that it shouldn't be that at you know the time in your life when you're so vulnerable and and so stressed and and already you know struggling so much you shouldn't have to be the one to then build that support system around yourself in traditional cultures that would have just happened automatically that would have been part of that traditional cultural care so it's normal for that to feel hard um but then on the other hand we can't overnight change those systems but what we can change quickly is our own mindset so we can keep working towards changing those systems but in the short term you know if you're having a baby right now that's not of any help to you that maybe in five years there'll be a policy change or something like that (laughs) right um but right now what we can do is just really shift our mindset to really understand that it takes a village to raise a child and we all say that but it becomes a little bit like a cliche you know no people don't really think about what that means but i've got one example that i really love and i i use this a lot but Um, when anthropologists want to understand traditional societies and and how humans lived likely for hundreds of thousands of years until very recently, they'll look at existing hunter-gatherer societies um, for clues to think, well, perhaps that's how we all once lived. And one of those examples is the Afei tribe uh, in Africa and they still live in in a very traditional way. And the Afei people have... 14 adult carers for every child on a daily basis that caring starts when the baby is born not six weeks old not three months old not six months old from birth that baby is is fed fed, breastfed held um, cuddled you know rocked to sleep by 14 adults on average every day and the baby's passed around very frequently so it's really that feeling of like you know, oh, I'm, I just need to go to the toilet. I'll just pass the baby to the father. And then the father's like, oh, I've just got to go run after the toddler. I'm going to pass the baby to the mother uh, and, or the mother-in-law or the grandmother or something. And then the uncle and then the aunt and so on. And someone's cooking dinner. And, you know, that baby is just a normal part of daily life. So whilst that's not going to happen <laughs> for people listening right now, the mindset can, the idea that that the feeling that this isn't normal and no wonder it's so hard and it's not my fault um, and who can I ask for help? It can kind of release some of the shame 
of that and um, help us to feel okay with reaching out in whatever way. I mean, and you obviously aren't likely to have an uncle living with you, but there are support lines for breastfeeding and for mental health. And there are, you know, people you can invite into your home to support you like postpartum doulas or, um, you know, people who can support you with food or with sleep or cleaning or friends and neighbours who can bring meals and walk the dog, you know. So as much as possible realising that um, that's what our bodies and our brains expect. That's what we evolved and adapted for. Uh, and, and, and that's what our babies expect too. That's why they want to be held all the time. Right. And so although we can't change the systems, we can really understand that deeply but I think that that still can take time to really the layers and layers of um of asking for help can be the shame and the guilt of that can be difficult to overcome right and I know for for me when I work with expectant families I do you know, help them create that village, right? It's, it's like, who who is that friend that you can call it in the middle of the night because you're, you're, you're struggling with something? Do you have a lactation consultant? Do you have a postpartum doula? You know, things like that so that you, you, you've kind of done your research before uh, the baby arrives so that you, you have that support. Um, Absolutely. Because it's true, you know, it, it depends on where, where you live in the world, because I know for me, it was France where I had my first child. That is part of the system, right? They, there, it was a country that lost many, many, many lives during the war. And they've just, they've just really kept this very family, you know, politic. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing how, supported I felt that you know I could have a carer come to the house or I could go to my local uh, clinic to you know get checked or ask questions or whatever uh, as opposed to here in the U.S. I was completely alone and I have no family here so it was it was a real kind of you know lonely experience and I remember thinking my goodness thank goodness I had had a child before because I cannot imagine Mm. you know after 24 hours being sent home with a newborn and it's like good luck have fun and it was just it was you're completely left on your own so you know Thank yeah. you for the the work that you're doing to to bring awareness and to to train people. So and and you know back to the art of parenting. How can we expect people to be the best parents under those circumstances? It's insane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, very true, very true. And I think you know the work that you're doing. Um, I feel that there's like you say, you know, a renaissance of bringing back some of the, the, the traditional ways and some of the basics, because I, at least, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm in a, in an area that is very, um, you know, pro natural births and and home births, like the, the community here in San Diego is very, uh, baby friendly and, 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 and such. And I feel like there's, there's really, you know, more information today. Um, So hopefully we are, we are coming back to, you know, to more respectful ways, more supportive ways. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I've been doing this for almost 15 years, I think now. And so it's obviously changed a lot in that time. But I do know that even for the first 10 years, it just felt like nothing was happening. And I'd even just say it's the last few years um, I actually think the pandemic has had it had a short term, obviously very negative effect on a lot of families. But I think the 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 flip side of that is the long term benefit is that I think culturally we understand the value of community care and and connection a lot better now. Um, that's kind of been, you know, we've with that by having it taken away, we've realised what it was worth, and I think. Um, that's kind of, I think, changed a lot of people's uh, perceptions of, you know, what does it mean to have a community and, and what does it mean to have support? You know, why is that important? And we've we've seen how important that is. Definitely. And, and I think on, on that note is also because I, I you know, I talked to a lot of people families who who were created during the pandemic and and it's there was 
part that was we had to slow down if that was kind of imposed on us right so there were even though the families maybe were isolated at the same time there was a real connection among them like there wasn't this pressure that you had to go back to work or you you got to spend more time you know one-on-one time with your children and i feel that that's also brought on an awareness of how important it is to have that time with our children. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's also removed some of the noise, like you were saying when you were learning to breastfeed and you, you know, you had the that other generation probably, I was going to say subtly undermining you, but maybe it was even overt. <laughs> um, but that removing that noise can be really helpful too, you know. So during the pandemic, you didn't have the pediatrician saying, oh, you know, you should be just doing this and you didn't then have the midwife giving you some other conflicting information and worse than that the mother-in-law and the the uncle who's never even had children and you know so on and so on and mums get so overwhelmed by this barrage of information and sadly even a, a lot of what professionals say is not uh, based on scientific evidence sometimes it is some some I don't mean all professionals obviously there are a lot of who, who work with a lot of integrity um, but I think one of the problems is, is the care is not integrated. So that's why with the new training that we're introducing next year, we want to include sleep, mental health and breastfeeding all inside the same course because I feel like people who give breastfeeding advice aren't necessarily taking into mental health uh, account mental health and people who are giving mental health advice aren't necessarily you know, understanding the complexities of infant sleep, um, you know. And so when you separate all of those pieces out, as we do in our current society, it, it's just become so disjointed and, and overwhelming. And actually, you know, all of those things work together. Um, and so really, I guess, back to the beginning, that's really one of the benefits of of that slowdown was that you didn't have that noise, that that confusing noise. Right. And, and, and women were asked to trust themselves a bit more, which I, I, you know, for me, it's, we know we, we have a very strong intuition and we, we, you know, like you say, if we, if the noise, if we don't hear all the noise, we, we know what needs to happen. We know what to ask for uh, and so forth. Yeah. We get a chance to learn just by, by, you know, listening to the baby and trying things out and, oh, that didn't work, so I'll try something else and, yeah, figuring it out. Right, right. Uh, one thing that you you talk about in your book, uh, Newborn Mothers, is the baby brain. And I would love for you to kind of explain that to to our listeners, like because, you know, often new mothers say, oh, it's just, you know, it's just my baby brain. And for me, I always, I, I've never liked that comment because it's it's kind of undermining the, <laughs> the 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 this immense work that you that you are doing. And so, I would love your your expertise on that of how you describe what exactly is going on in a new mother's brain. Yes, and I deliberately use the word baby brain because I want to subvert that negative concept we have. Mm-hmm. I think in the US it's often called mother brain more often. Do you know that? Uh, I've heard more baby brain, but... But uh, it's usually yeah. not a good thing, is it? It's usually exactly. derogatory. No, it's, it's like, oh, I'm so dumb and, yeah, you know, it's my baby brain. Forgetful, or, yeah, forgetful, yeah. yeah, lazy... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's the stereotype is like the mum who put her keys in the fridge or something like that. And the, and the truth, there is some truth to that. But but what is overstated in pop culture is the negative effects and what is understated is the positive effects and why this actually happens. So when a person has a baby, the brain begins changing during pregnancy and those and throughout the birth and postpartum those changes are really bedded down they're impacted by parenting and breastfeeding as well so people who don't give birth um, but are actively parent will also experience some brain changes but the the two kind of ways of explaining baby brain that i usually use are learning and, and loving so learning is uh, obviously when you become a parent, it's a huge learning curve. And so what happens is your brain becomes more plastic. It becomes more um, changeable and, and more open to new information. And so that plasticity um, is kind of like a bit, can feel a bit 
overwhelming, you know, having everything wide open. Um, but eventually what gets bedded down is you throw out some of the old information that's not relevant anymore and you, you know, gather all of this new information that you need, these new knowledge and skills that you need to be a great parent. And then the other side of it is the loving and falling in love. And that is the hormonal changes that happen in the brain uh, at this time. And again, there are both environmental as well as biological factors to these brain changes. And um, there's a lot of hormones involved, but the one that I usually talk about the most is oxytocin, which is um, the love hormone. It literally means quick birth, um, oxytocin. And but we, because that's how it was discovered, we realized that it, it helped to all mammals to give birth more quickly. But then we realized it's also involved in breastfeeding and, um, in fact, it's, a, it's actually a love hormone, um, which makes perfect sense why that would peak um, during birth, you know, to prepare you. I think the peak of oxytocin is between the birth of the baby and the birth of the placenta. And so you can imagine that's the moment when you meet the baby and you have to, you know, not um <laughs> not leave them there on the floor uh, which is you know a lot of women do feel that complete you know like a, a lot of some women feel that ecstatic love instantly but a lot of women just feel like oh my god like that physical experience has just been so overwhelming and you know who is that little thing you know you could easily imagine how if you didn't have that rush of of of, of this bonding hormone and it's not only a once and done thing that happens for you know, weeks, months and years after you've had your baby um, because the baby needs so much of you, then then that makes sense that you have this huge brain rewiring so that you can meet the needs of that baby. So the loving and the learning changes are what, um, you know, what I refer to as baby brain. And the positive part of that is that you become a better parent and on top of that it's actually found these changes are protective um, against uh, you know poor mental health outcomes and that sort of thing as well so you don't only become a better mum you also become a happy and a healthier mum too beautiful beautiful and 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 this this change in our brain does this happen multiple times? So if we have multiple children, it's going to happen again and again, or is it just like when we first become a mother for, for the first child? Yeah, look, there's not enough research. People ask me this question a lot, and I would love to have um, clear answers. Anecdotally, my feeling is all the mums I talk to have varying experiences of baby brain with every child. Would that be your experience? Right. Yes, because I, I was going to say, I, you know, I, I know that when with my first child, you know, I was so, so excited to become a, a parent and so forth. And with the second, you're, you're like, oh, my goodness, how can I have, you know, so much love like I did with the first one? And, and it, and it is, it's like, it's, you know, it just, it's infinite. So, so I can imagine that, you know, for every child that's going to, to happen, it's just it's a whole new experience because it's a whole new person and child and so forth. So. Yeah, that's definitely my experience, both personally and professionally. I'd love some researchers to come along and um, <laughs> and study it a bit better because like all of these things, baby brain research began because we finally had enough women who were scientists and when women who were scientists start, or brain scientists, they start having babies of their own and they start to go, mm, I feel different. I think I'm going to have to study this, <laughs> um, you know, but prior to that, most scientists were men and they weren't at all interested in these brain changes. In fact, early male scientists had the belief that brains were static and didn't change throughout the lifetime, which we now know is completely wrong. Um, but it took a woman actually to, to discover neuroplasticity. So, you know, this is an open invitation if there are any scientists listening <laughs> we have so many gaps in um in research for everything related to postpartum same with breastfeeding most of what we know about breastfeeding actually comes from the dairy industry and uh, bovine lactation so if you ever do research into lactation you have to specify human lactation uh, otherwise you'll get all these articles about cows some of it's actually quite translatable <laughs> Some of it's still relevant. Um, but, you know, it just shows the status of mothers and, and women and the way we think about, um, you know, the value of this role in our society that we don't even 
we don't even have the data. Right, right. And when you say that it's a a, a woman who uh, discovered this, do you know who that is? Uh, yes. So there's a lot of women along the way who contributed, but one of the original ones, her name was Marion Diamond. Okay, because when you were when you were describing the you know, how the brain changes and, and we know, you know, now we know that a newborn has, you know, this tremendous brain that is evolving every day and so forth. For me, that is uh, Dr. Maria Montessori's work that really brought to light a lot of that. And that's what, that's my background. So, um, mm. so it's interesting when you were talking about that and, and she, you know, and she also, she was one of the first women allowed to go to medical school like she had to ask men permission do you know what what year that was what year she went to medical school or it, it yeah, was would that have been maybe like the 20s or the 30s uh no this was uh late 1800 because her yeah the, right the first montessori school opened in 1907 so it would have had to have oh, been wow yeah so that was very early yeah. yes and she you know she did quite a lot of work to uh uh, you know, advocacy work for for the rights of women, for the rights of children, uh, because before, you know, before her, we, you know, thought children were just empty vessels that, you know, we we could fill up and so forth. And now there, there's, you know, so much. And, and for me, what's the beauty of, of her discoveries is that today with brain research and brain scans, everything that she kind of you know unveiled is is being proven uh so it's mm, yes because we have the technology exactly to, to do that yeah yeah fascinating yeah and I feel like there is this long lineage of women who've um had to really fight hard you know a lot of women like I know Marie Curie who was a woman scientist around that time too um, she got some of her earliest grants and recognition through her husband, who was also a scientist. So he could kind of like put his name on some things, uh, not because he was trying to steal her work, but because that was the only way she could get kind of funding or acknowledgement exactly. or get published, you know. So, you know, there must just be so many women along the way who've just had to overcome such enormous barriers to participation uh, and then yet made these massive leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, this has been wonderful, and I could go on for a long time, but I'm 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 being aware of of our time together. And uh, you did mention earlier that you're a mother yourself. Yes, I have three children. So my my daughter's in high school. My two boys are still in primary school. So what what is the age of the eldest? My oldest is twelve, and and then I've got a ten year old boy and a six year old as well. So, so Julia, if you were to go back 13 years ago when you were expecting your first child, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? That is such a good question. So, I mean, there's a thousand things, but in the context of today's conversation, I think when I had my first, I had already studied postpartum. I'd already um, supported a few mums as a postpartum doula. Uh, and I thought I had a fair bit of knowledge around postpartum, but the piece that I was missing was the fact that you cannot do it for yourself. So I thought, well, I know the recipes, you know, I've cooked them for other mums. I'll just cook them for myself when I have a baby. Um, but what I didn't realise is that you can't. You can't do that. It's actually impossible. Uh, and I would have asked for a lot more help. Uh, and paid for a lot more help because actually at that time um, I did have a little bit of money. I mean, I didn't have heaps, but, you know, before you have children, you've got two adults on in, on full-time income. So if we had realised we could have definitely prioritised um, putting some money aside to to be cared for a bit better. But I just thought, well, I'll just do it, you know. I know about belly binding. I'll just bind my own belly but I had no idea of the importance of community care um, back at that time in my life so you know I think that's probably that was the key lesson I think of that first child right 
Beautiful. That that yeah, we're not we're not meant to do it alone. No, and in fact, especially in regards to the recipes, one thing that I found when I'm studying postpartum food traditions uh, in many many different cultures is that there's a lot of really complicated rules for which I can find no universal themes or scientific basis you know you can't eat this and you shouldn't eat that and you shouldn't mix this with the other and you know all of these kind of things the, and my conclusion is i think they have those rules as a way of protecting the knowledge so that you have to have someone specially cook for the mother you know she can't just eat the leftovers of the toddler because um there's this quite rigid postpartum dietary guidelines in so many different cultures um, you know, so I kind of think that my my feeling about all of these conflicting and strict rules is that, in fact, they're designed to make sure that the mum gets cooked for, that people specifically are cooking postpartum food that's designed only for her. Um, you know, so that's kind of like what I would go back and tell myself, let someone else cook the meals and, you know, don't try and do that yourself. Right, beautiful. Thank you. And and for for um our closing, are there are there any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with? Well, if people listening are having a baby or already had a baby and feel like this kind of knowledge and care would be valuable to them, you can check out my book, Newborn Mothers, When a Baby is Born, So is a Mother. And if you think maybe you'd even like to take another step beyond that and do training to become a postpartum education and care professional, you can visit my website, newbornmothers.com, and go to the training page and find out all about it there. Wonderful. And I'll have all of those uh, links on the show notes. So thank you so much, uh, Julia, for having spent this time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.